What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt from my outdoor screened in porch studio where I'm being protected from the rain. You may be able to hear it in the background. Let me give you a few seconds. It's pouring out, but I'm dry. Got my warm clothes on. I'm here to introduce you to this episode I recorded with Alexander Leishman earlier this week on Monday. Nice Monday afternoon rip. I think Alex and I are uh, <clears throat> kindred spirits. One of my favorite guests to have on. It was only his second time. Maybe his third time. I can't remember. It's not our first conversation. Building on conversations we've had in the past about Bitcoin, River, the chaotic ro- world around us, how best to get through this chaotic quagmire we find ourselves in as we continue to transition into the digital age. We talked about uh, a conversation we had on Twitter over the weekend about the metaverse, the future of technology and humanity, and how they're going to coexist. We need to get back to making the physical beautiful people. I truly believe that. I think the metaverse is a sick and evil and dystopian, nihilistic view of the future. You want to live in your pod with your goggles on? eating your soy sludge, eating the bugs, living in this perfectly depicted digital world that has been set for you. You didn't build it. You may think you are. Very dystopian. I don't like it. This room is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash Cash apps help you stack sets, send sets, receive sets, and sell sets, if you so please. Sats are the standard. There's 100 million sats in one whole Bitcoin. Cash app makes it easy to stack sats. You can DCA into sats. You can get sats back uh, if you have a boost card uh, at, at restaurants. You go and you get 5% sats back every, up to a limit every once in a while. Cash app can be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers. I think they're going to expand their Bitcoin product suite. That's all I'll say. If you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet, make sure you do so using the code StackingSats. It's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. And $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 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 Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your Bitcoin security setup. Having your coins on an exchange. I mean, you actually don't even have coins. You have claims to coins, and that's a single point of failure. Third-party risk. That exchange decides, hey, you know, uh, we're just not going to give you your Bitcoin. You're shit out of luck. Or that exchange gets hacked, which is happening a lot on Coinbase. You're shit out of luck. Uh, Unchain offers a collaborative custody model. It's a two or three multi-sig. You hold two keys. Unchain holds one. You always have control of your Bitcoin, but if you need uh, Unchained to be that second in the two or three multi-sig setup, they are there for you. They have a Wake Love concierge service that's going to walk you through this product. Uh, it's going to walk you through multi-sig, through their their vaults specifically. They're going to get you hardware wallets. It's going to help you set those up, teach you how to secure your seed phrases, how to back up your derivation pass for the multi-sig wallets. Uh, and then they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into your vault at the end of the day. If you tell them that TFTC sent you, you're going to get... off that particular package. Again, it's a white glove service. They're going to hold your hand through the process. If you don't want to buy the, the, uh, the package outright, you can have a free one-on-one consultation where you can learn a little bit about it more first. Uh, they also just announced yesterday that they've 
released a a after you get your vault set up and if you want banking like services private banking like services where you have dedicated uh, individuals who are going to make sure that you're as comfortable as possible with your vault set up and with your services at Unchained uh, they're offering that now for $2,000 a year uh, if you want that white glove private banking like service Unchained is here to be a partner they're not a product they're not an app they're a partner they're here to help you take care of your wealth your bitcoin wealth and to secure it properly and to make sure that you have sovereignty over that go check everything they have at unchained.com this was also brought to you by good friends at compass mining compass mining is here to get more individuals into the hashing game they want to distribute the mining layer of bitcoin a bit more and the way it works you go to compassmining.io you can buy a miner all right you can have that miner sent to your home and they have an at-home mining uh, support team that is there to help you figure out what the hell you need to do it's not trivial all right if you get these miners especially the top of the line miners these days you're going to have to have very specific electrical infrastructure set up wherever you're plugging your miner in the compass team is going to walk you through that process what you need to do who you need to hire what electricians you need to look into what amps what voltages you need your setup to have and then they're going to teach you how to connect to your miners ip address and point it at a pool and then get those sat streaming to a wallet of your choice if you don't want to go through all that, they also have partners on the hosting side with competitive electricity rates. Uh, you can buy a miner on Compass and then pick a hosting facility to plug it in. And uh, I think I heard yesterday that they've got a big partnership with a with a large power provider up in Canada that is going to increase their, their available rack space significantly at some point later in 2022. All right, go check out everything Compass Mining has going on at compassmining.io. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by good friends at Brain. Brains. Brains is the team behind Slush Pool. They're the team behind Brains OS Plus firmware, which helps you stack more sats with your ASICs. Let's talk about the firmware for a little bit, okay? The firmware basically goes into the, the hashing chips on your hashing board and figures out the higher frequency chips and the lower frequency chips and focuses the energy on the higher frequency chips, thus producing more hashes, which thus produces more sats for you. You're going to get more bang for your buck out of your ASICs if you have an ASIC that has the ability to have Brains OS Plus downloaded on it and you're not using it, you're leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. Go to brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com uh, to check out the Brains OS Plus firmware page where you can find out what models are available to download that firmware on. What's minor is very, very soon. That's what I'm hearing. Um, S19s are also in, in user beta. And you can go to brains.com and check out everything they have beyond Brains OS Plus. They've got minor profitability tools. They've got a lot of content. Obviously, they have Slush Pool, which they updated earlier this summer um, to, to get more granular payouts, payout thresholds, multi. If you have an account and you have multiple people associated with that mining operation, you can get percentage splits to make everything easy so you're not sending multiple transactions yourselves. Um, what else? What else? They're hiring, too. If you're a Rust developer, system admin, or you work with hardware uh, and you're looking to work for a quality Bitcoin-only company, highly recommend checking out brains go to brains b-r-a-i-i-n-s.com or check out their twitter page at brains underscore systems enjoy this rip freaks i know i certainly did you've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free if you talk about a fed just gone nuts all all the central banks going nuts so it's all acting like safe haven. 
I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. I need a fact checker. We need a fact checker to find out if Joe Biden shit his pants at the Vatican earlier this week. Talking about the big questions. Talking about the big questions with Alex Leishman here. They're going to lock that away in the, the Vatican vault. <laughs> yeah, with, a, with all the other weird stuff they got down there. <laughs> uh, we're starting right into Vatican conspiracy theories. Is the Pope a Satanist? Who knows? I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, I'm not going to get that. eternal question. We're not going there right now. Actually, got yelled at somebody. somebody <laughs> this podcast has the opportunity to be a great Bitcoin podcast, but Marty talks about. Well, I'm not Catholic, so. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's ease into it, Alex. Let's do it. Welcome back to Austin. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. When we're we going to have you here permanently? That's the question. You know, I ask myself that a lot. I, I've been here probably what four times in the last year, so I'm always looking for a good excuse to hop away from SF for a bit. I've seen you three of those four times, uh, yeah, in April, and then a couple of weeks ago, now this week. Yeah. You're on a bit of a road show, dude. You, uh, what's going on at River? Well, we got a lot going on. Um, we just launched this, this mining product recently. Uh, I heard. Is, I saw it. Yeah, it's been off to a great reception. We, you know, we started the company with the idea that people wanted to buy Bitcoin and, and hold it, and then... We're, we're, we've been realizing, you know, pretty quickly that people, there's a lot more people want to do with their Bitcoin uh, and a lot more people want to do just related to Bitcoin and, um, you know, realized our clients all really wanted to, to mine. Uh, and it's, it's an exciting new way for them to get into a Bitcoin position. And we realized we could make it a lot easier than sort of any of the other options out there because of the way we built the company. Um, because we're, we are a financial institution, so we can integrate the mining directly into uh, you know, in, into their river account and it, the, the Bitcoin just shows up there and they own the equipment and um, we abstract away as much of the complexity as possible. All right. There's a few rabbit holes I want to dive down with this mining product specifically. First, let's dive down to like the mechanics rabbit hole. Like how does it work? Do you guys own a facility? Are you co-hosting with a partner? How's that going? Yeah. So, so we, we announced the product. It's not live yet, but we've been um, s selling pre-orders for, for miners that will go live in Q1. The way it works is uh, the, the equipment is brand new, uh, Bitmain S19J Pros. They're going to be hosted at uh, a co one of a few colos uh, that we're partnering with and managing the relationships with, sort of utilizing our economies of scale um, to get our clients uh, solid rates and, um, and operating the machines, um, you know, kind of in, in, in these colos, uh, our clients though actually own the actual machine at the end of the day. So if they ever wanted those machines, they're theirs, uh, yeah. for the taking. We could take them in kind. Exactly. Yep. And, um, and you know, that there, there is a, one machine that maps to their name, right? That their machines are kind of earmarked exactly. Yeah, they come with serial numbers and all that stuff. Yeah, they'll have serial numbers, and, and our clients will, you know, know which machines are theirs, and it's their property. Hell yeah! So we're not. This isn't cloud mining in the kind of scammy sense of the of the, you know, where historically you could, you know, pay ten bucks or for you know, fifteen minutes of hash rate and hope you came out ahead. You actually are mining, um, and we're just making it easy for you. Hell yeah! No, I think that's going to be a great value add. Looks like we have our. Um 
our coffee being delivered. I might oh, need to go open that door. I got it. I got it. My beautiful wife was kind enough to bring us coffee. We're at the outdoor studio. Here. No, we're, <laughs> Alex brought a, a bottle of Maker's Mark. It is uh, it is twelve fifteen on a Monday. I'm not going to be drinking any Maker's Mark. Yeah, right now. no, me neither. Yeah. Uh, oh God, that actually sounds terrible to drink Maker's Mark right now. You know, when I went to buy this bottle. Um, yeah, I, I asked them to give me something good, and they were like, "Well, we can give you all sort. We can let you taste everything." I was like, "Guys, it's a little too early for me to be tasting whiskey right now. <laughs> Just give me something good." That's the uh, the low key uh, added benefit of in person interviews. The guests will start bringing more alcohol, like they did in the early days. I don't drink as much on this podcast as I used to. Yeah, well, I mean, you got a kid now. Uh, I think last time I was here, we we definitely got maybe half a bottle of whiskey deep. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, we end, we ended that show on uh, fluoride stairs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably get back there in this sober rip too. Um, but back to the mining, it's like inner. So that's a couple of things. Like, are you worried about these co-location facilities rug pulling you, or are you able to like lock in these long-term deals with them? So we have long-term deals. Yeah, um, that's important to us. Uh, we do a lot of vetting on our partners and only stick to high-quality partners. Um, we're not. You know, we're not hosting in um, Bob's uh, mining shed in, you know, backwoods, wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're trying to keep it with really high quality partners where we know the contracts are solid. They deliver what they say they're going to deliver. And um, if anything does go wrong, we know, we'll, you know, things will be covered Hell yeah! in this recourse. And are you guys mining at all for River, the company? Like, are you going to get a, uh, access to hash rate yourselves? Um, so we, we probably will do some self-mining. Uh, but that's not our focus at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, as a as a, the CEO, I want to accumulate as much Bitcoin as I can on our balance sheet, of course. But um, uh, you know, it's just a it's sort of a different business trying to scale up our own self mining operation. But likely, we will uh, you know a a, por- a a fraction of the hash rate that we are acquiring um, in the machines. We will just keep for ourselves. No, I love that. And that, which leads me to like the other rabbit hole I wanted to jump down. And Matt and I discussed it on RHR on Friday is that again, we we're big fans of river and the, the company you're building. Cause, and we said it on Friday, we think cause of your focus that you're able to do things. What many Bitcoiners would deem is the correct way, but also gives you a competitive advantage in the long run as everybody's focused on the noise in the space and the quote-unquote crypto space. And that's always been a theory of mine, uh, particularly in the last like year and a half I've been working in. Like, very, very interested to hear your thoughts on this. Like, I think I've become convinced that exchanges like River or brokerages like River are going to need access to mining infrastructure and have to have skin in the game of mining infrastructure to get access to liquidity is there any like do you think like a, a decade 15 years from now like do you think there's any truth in that theory or when you say access to infrastructure what kind of infrastructure like actual mining like having equity in a mining operation or self-mining oh, yourself so kind of vertically integrating yeah yeah no i i think there's i think there's truth to that i think there's a few ways it could play out and i don't know exactly how it's going to go and we're, we're trying to stay somewhat flexible um they're sort of getting really big brain about it all and saying that um, the only people 
like long term, like 10, 20, 30 years out, who will be able to mine profitably will be like energy companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there's always going to be uh, this this breakdown in the market where the lowest cost energy providers don't only want to self mine. Um, they do want to just take some like have like these predictable um, sort of recurring revenue streams from from other and, and sell their their energy to, to other people who want to mine with it. Um, and so given that future, um, what does that mean for us? Well, we have to make the decision long term. Do we want to be our own energy producer or do we want to partner with energy producers and only run mining infrastructure? And I don't know what the answer there is, um, but uh, it's p- potentially a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, we just we just have to see the thing. The thing is, though, you know, mining is a very capital intensive business. It's very different than the software business that we, you know, software and sort of financial institution business we, we've been in historically. So it's something we want to be very thoughtful about um, doing over the coming years. And we're still thinking about it. Yeah. No, I mean, this is exactly what I've been thinking about the last two and a half years at Great American Mining is all right. Like what is going to happen is the Bitcoin mining industry going to become a bunch of energy producers as well. Are the energy producers going to come become miners or are people going to realize the division of labor and um, the benefits of specialization and just have these partnerships? Um, and that's how things evolve in the future. I think we can see a mixture of all three. Um, but I do think what you said, like the energy producers at the end of the day, they do have a shit ton of energy. I don't think they have the capital to build out the mining infrastructure themselves to, to consume all the energy that they could potentially produce. Like they're going to need partners to, to fill up that, that rack space. Yeah. And, and I also see sort of things coming in cycles. It, it, it almost seems that self self mining um, is great for these energy producers or these big colo facilities in a bull market or when profitability is really high. Um, but just being a seller of, of energy and having more predictable recurring revenue streams, letting other people take price risk, um, you know, is something that in many ways, the more conservative institutions will probably be much more open to doing until Bitcoin is to totally, totally mainstream. So I, I think it's going to be somewhat heterogeneous in that they're going to be institutional operations that, just want to self mine and accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible. And there's going to be the the big players that would rather just sell energy for a fixed price and um, let someone else take the Bitcoin price risk yeah. or the mining profitability risk. Yeah. 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 It's going to, regardless of what happens, it's going to be fun to watch play out. Um, I mean, we're seeing here in Texas specifically, particularly in Houston, uh, like the energy, the oil and gas guys are, it seems like a lot of them are falling deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and the mining rabbit hole specifically, which is like another uh, whole another rabbit hole we get into is like ASIC availability. Like we have a shit ton of these uh, well-capitalized uh, family offices that own a lot of oil and gas assets that want to get into mining. And it seems like there's going to be a flood. It's like, can the manufacturers keep up with the flood that's coming? And if not, how crazy like are these ASIC prices going to get? Yeah, I I think it's a it's a really good question. I don't know what the answer is right now. The bottleneck seems to largely be just the the hosting capacity because of this glut of equipment that came on the market from the, the China ban. But yeah, I think long term it's likely going to be fab capacity, and 
I mean, we have a bunch of fabs coming online in the U.S. over the next decade. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they'll be able to produce at the same sort of level of quality or um, sort of you know node size that the TSMC um, plant in, in Taiwan can. Yeah, but it's going to be an interesting dynamic as North American fab capacity grows. Yeah, if I'm recalling correctly, I think TSMC's Arizona foundry that they're supposed to be building a seven nanometer and then samsung's austin facility will be five nanometer so it'll be interesting i'll be keeping an eye on the samsung foundry particularly here yeah whether or not like and like that's the other question but by the time that ground is broken and the the foundry is finally up and running in a few to many years will the asic uh advancements be below five nanometer that's up for debate um yeah and it's i I don't know the answer i i I wish i knew more about semiconductors um but all one thing i do know is it's 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 obviously incredibly incredibly challenging to manufacture these high quality (laughs) semiconductors because if it wasn't you would see the most valuable companies in the world vertically integrating you know Google, Apple, mm-hmm. Microsoft, and none of them have. Yeah. Because, and that, like, if Apple doesn't want to vertically integrate into this, you know, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and wasn't, I mean, and then you have an example of companies that were somewhat vertically integrated and have failed, like Intel. Wasn't Intel vertically integrated to a degree? Intel was having their own chips. And making um, their own computers, aren't they, or no? Well, they, so... I've actually been reading this book recently. It's called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. He was early at Intel, um, ended up sort of being one of the VCs early in Google. He was talking about his time there, and it sounds like, I'm not an expert in the history of Intel, but my understanding was they they missed the PC revolution mm-hmm. from, a, um, from the standpoint of vertically integrating and actually developing their own like consumer computers. Like They missed that trend. It might... Um, Apple sort of uh, beat them to that, and, and mm-hmm. as, as did others, um, and so they kind of were were stuck just making the chips. But yeah. I forget who the CEO was who was smart enough to at least sort of put the put the Intel sticker on and, on Andy all those Grove? pieces. Andy, was it Andy Grove at that point? I think it. I think it was. I don't know if it was still Andy Grove by then. Okay. It's possible. Um, the, the, like the Pentium stickers that we saw on all yeah, the computers yeah, yeah. when we were kids. Well, that's probably why I think they got into computers. I, I, rec- I remember the stickers yeah. particularly. Yeah. So they didn't make those computers, but they were self-aware enough that they could still build the, their brand um, without manufacturing the computers themselves. Yeah. But That's another book about Intel, if you haven't read yet, Andy Grove's High Output Management. Um, yeah. For anybody listening to this. Yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite yeah. books. You get a peek into how he basically divided the labor and, and kept track of everything at Intel when they were an extremely well-oiled machine. Yeah, he was a world-class manager. Yeah. Very world-class. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame, like, that Intel has fallen behind, like, the TSMC, Samsungs of the world in terms of, like, quality chips. Studying companies is something I've been doing a lot more of recently because I would say over the last year, Rivers transitioned from a startup to a company, I would mm-hmm. say. I mean, colloquially... I think people would call us a startup, but I think my definition is sort of I mean, when when you're a when you're a founder of a company, 
versus when you're a CEO of a company. Okay. Um, like when you're a founder, it's still a startup, but when you have to become a CEO, it's more like more real at that point. You have, you know, uh, an, this, this group of people where it, it's big enough where it's not trivial to organize anymore mm-hmm. and really requires a lot of thought and um, uh, deliberate planning um, to orchestrate this group of people towards a common purpose. Uh, and if you haven't done it before, like myself, um, it's actually a pretty steep learning curve. <laughs> it's a lot different than going and raising a seed round and getting three engineers to, to build an app. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a topic I've been thinking a lot about recently and trying to look at the, the people who did it really well and, and learn from them. Well, let's dive into it, right? Since the last time we spoke, you guys, you guys uh, locked down a headquarters in Cleveland? Uh, so, so our, our HQ is still SF, but we're, we're opening, um, an office in Columbus In Columbus. Uh, yeah. And that's going to be done here in the next month mm-hmm. and really excited for that. Um, a bunch of the people in our SF office were actually there, uh, temporarily, um, with the, with the plan of going back to Columbus. And so we'll be scaling up our operations there that the, wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being our biggest office, uh, within a year. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't, um, assume like Columbus is, is like the Bitcoin broker hotspot, but I love the, I love it that like you're giving Columbus some shine. We kind of like, I don't, I don't see, see opening an office in Columbus as a gamble, but we like doing things a little differently and we're not scared to, um, sort of do things that others haven't. So Columbus is actually a hotbed of talent in the financial services world. So like JP Morgan has their back office operations there. Tons of financial and insurance companies have a lot of um, big offices in Columbus. So it's on, so there's a huge talent pool and most of the jobs that they have are, are boring and legacy. Mm-hmm. So um, opening a cool office in Columbus, opening an office in Columbus uh, actually allows us to get the top talent in Columbus because we're one of the companies in town doing something novel and different. Um, as opposed to an SF in New York, you're competing with every other big tech company, you know, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, um, and and Columbus is sort of uh, a frontier that those companies haven't really tapped yet. Yeah. And when you compound that with the, the rush out of cities like San Francisco and New York and, um, yeah, other similar cities, (coughs) excuse me. It probably, it seems like a good strategic move. It's also very culturally, um, I think it's culturally healthier there as well. Yeah. Um, you know, community seems a bit tighter um from a from a company culture perspective it's aligned where you know we want the ethos of our company to be and the types of people that, that you know we want at the company and um want to definitely be careful about being being too overtly coastal yeah 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 that's that seems to be uh on its way out as a as something that you want to market these days as <laughs> being quote unquote <laughs> coastal it's not that, I mean, I've lived on the coast my whole life, but um, I think there is something special the Midwest brings. Something yeah. special every region the country brings, and it'd be silly to, you know, to not take advantage of it. Are you guys going to get a Browns box seat? Uh, you know, it, we, we talk, we, it's funny, we talked about getting a box in Columbus, because getting boxes in SF are insanely expensive for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Columbus, it's actually decently affordable, so who knows? We'll see. We definitely have some, maybe, maybe OSU. Um, uh, no, you got to go Cleveland Browns. You got to get Baker, uh, sponsored by River. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, he's a great salesman. His, uh, his oh, yeah. State Farm pitches are, are, are top notch, if nice. you will. Yeah. Uh, I'm pumped for you guys, too. Like, again, like back to 
transitioning from a founder to a CEO, again, obviously coordinating messaging to a large company or a large employee base, what's been the hardest part for you personally? So I think the hardest part for me has been um, figuring out what's important to focus on Mm -hmm. uh, as a CEO um, and getting smart about because really there's there's an unlimited number of things you can be doing at any given time um, from, from the day-to-day sort of operational things that are high urgency, right? Fixing this fire there, um, making sure this gets taken care of there. Um, but, the, the, but, no, but then knowing like how to really um, block your time so that you can focus on the very important high-level questions that you need to answer to give the company clarity about exactly where it's going. Um, it sounds sort of easy on the surface, but when you actually get into it, there's just so much there. Like, how do you take a, a clear vision and strategy and then break that down into things that um, the rest of the company can execute on, while at the same time also building an organization where the innovation doesn't come just from you, it comes from everybody mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, bubbles up, uh, co- converges into a clear strategy and then bubbles back down, right? Um, all of those things are are easy to talk about in theory, but um, require a lot of deliberate um, uh, work to actually execute in practice. So are there any lessons uh, from adding this, this mining product that sort of highlighted any of the, like the bubbling up that you just mentioned? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, th- this mining idea was, was sort of, sort of the result of a few different people in the company sort of bringing this up, talking about it. Um, you know, we synthesized the idea into something that we thought would be a good product and then just executed. And so, um, at the end of the day, uh, what really has allowed us to level up as a company and, and, and execute on these things has been just bringing in really, really good people and really good leadership. And at the end, and, you know, I've always heard, you know, entrepreneurs talk about having the right people, having the right people. Um, but you know, every day, you know, I just count my lucky stars and, 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 and realize how, how great, how lucky I am to have such a great team because there's no way, um, shipping new novel things like this could happen without, without those people. Yeah. No, I, I fucking love to hear it. Cause again, you guys are doing it you, again. If you haven't listened to the first conversation with Alex and I dove really deep into the concept of being a Bitcoin only company and focusing on that, um, zigging while everybody's zagging into the the shitcoin casino uh revenue stream money maker um like being focused and actually focusing on bitcoin the bitcoin stack and providing your clients and users uh, the best bitcoin experience that they can uh have and uh, compared to everybody else on the market and so it, it seems like you guys are executing on that very well yeah and there, there's something zen about it mm-hmm. um i'm I mean, I've been through all the bubbles, so, you know, I kind of know how to stay focused. Um, And I think where where our vision converges with sort of what I'm learning about running a company is distraction is bad, right? Just period. Um, You have to have, you have to be very confident in your strategy and focus and always, of course, like know how to adjust when new information comes along. But, um, you know, for me, I just feel very, very confident that Bitcoin is the largest cryptocurrency, it is very quickly changing the world. And there are so many opportunities for things left to build that have not been built uh, in this space. 
um, especially for a company like ours trying to make, you know, tr trying to make it easy to invest in Bitcoin and, and do more with your Bitcoin. Um, there's a whole world of products nobody's built. And the reason I, I've sort of come to this um, conclusion that building novel things on Bitcoin is both technically uh, difficult, takes longer, more deliberate, methodical sort of protocol level um, uh, work, uh, you know, deep technical research, and it doesn't have an immediate massive cash payoff, right? Um, so, for example, in contrast to that, um, imagine, you know, developing a new coin right, or a new token or a DAO on, on Ethereum. Um, one, it's a lot easier to pull off because the, the primitives are all kind of there. Um, you know, a JavaScript developer can create a new sort of financial, you know, institution on Ethereum in, in, a, in a month and, you know, launch a coin and, and make tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but the long-term potential of building these hard-to-build things in the Bitcoin space um, is much, much greater. So, so the short-term payoff is small, but the long-term payoff, if you're focused and dedicated, will be much bigger. And that's how we think about it. So, um, so yeah, you know, it's just more being, being willing to see those short-term, you know, returns go to other people and, and focus on the big fish at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, again, obviously I philosophically align pretty perfectly with that vision as well. It's, it's a long, a long game that we're playing. Uh, there's going to be a lot of short, I mean, we've seen it being through many of these bubbles. There's a lot of short term gains to be made uh, in the altcoin world, but nothing ever seems to stick for too long. Um, and I think like, so you have the brokerage service, you have lightning enabled, now you have the mining service. Beyond that, like what do you like is there anything you're willing to discuss on the product roadmap? So there's uh there's a lot of ideas that we have baking um on the product roadmap. Different ways that you know, to to allow people to do more with their Bitcoin. Um I guess all I'll say is I think that we've only scratched the surface of ways to put Bitcoin to work, right? There's this whole world, there's, there's this whole sort of like digital world expanding, whether you want to call it the internet, whether you want to call it the, the, the we can, we can talk about this, the, yeah. the M word, the metaverse, um, the we'll talk about it. Um, you hopped in my menchies this weekend. I didn't forget. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we're looking at, you know, where, like, wh where's the puck going, right? where are people going to want to put their Bitcoin to work? Um, and I think the, the nobody knows exactly, um, but we have some ideas and uh, not ready to talk about them today. Um, the first one is mining, um, but I think that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Okay. I'm just gonna, th I'm just gonna throw out what I'd like to see. I'd like to see River become a DLC Oracle, maybe like a DLC platform. Um, big on DLCs these days, if you couldn't tell. DLCs but, are very interesting. Yeah, Chris uh, Chris uh, Stewart just swung by the office last week from Sherdbits. Oh, he did. Um, yeah, so for for anyone listening, if you if you want to learn more about DLCs, he's uh, Sherdbits is doing some really cool stuff there. Yeah, and he was just on the podcast last week, so go look for that. Oh, really? Oh, well. awesome. I mean, last week Alex and I are having this conversation on Monday, November first. 
Um, I think this will be posted next week, so two weeks ago, if you're you're listening at home to this episode. Uh, that's that's where you can find the Chris episode. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, I, I completely agree. that We've only scratched the surface. And, like, especially when you think about, like, the total addressable market of, of the Internet stack being energized by Bitcoin or supercharged by Bitcoin, however you want to describe it and use it, um, which I think dovetails into the metaverse conversation. So I, I had a, a buzzed. I got to stop tweeting when I'm buzzed. I think that's... Um, that's what gets me in trouble. It, it doesn't get me in trouble, but I just like wake up and like, ah, what I do this is unnecessary. Not that it's unnecessary, but like, yeah, the whole metaverse meme. I mean, the the Ethereum crowd's been pumping it. Um, obviously, Facebook has completely uh, pivoted their business uh, and going all in on it. Uh, and I don't know, people are like cheering it on. And, and to me, the notion of a metaverse is really pushing us into like a matrix like world where people live in their pod, they have their AR. You know, the VR goggles on, they, they just don't enjoy the beauty of the natural world. And and, and with that being said as well, like I, I do recognize, obviously, we're transitioning into a digital age and people do like these experiences. But I, I think there's a, the attention and the enthusiasm around these experience, experiences is driven by an escapism that is caused by the the sickness that that the fiat standard has sort of injected the world with. People are just insanely desperate and disillusioned and and not optimistic of the future, and they'd rather go into the quote-unquote metaverse where everything, uh, where perfection can be be coded and you can can live in that that digital world. Yeah, I I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think one, one interesting question to dive into is, um, what, why do people want to escape and how much of it is driven by the fiat standard and sort of the second order effects that has on our culture and how much of it is driven just by human nature and the general fact that, you know, a lot of people just don't have a lot of interesting things going on in the, in the real world. Um, and has that always been the case? I don't know the answer and I completely agree that the ideal scenario is the real world just gets so much better that humans love reality, right? And, and, and love humanity and want to see humanity expand and grow outward instead of going inward and escaping into just this, this, this invented digital world where everything is just so easy. Reality is so much, a, a, a fake reality is so much easier to, to contrive um, that, you know, everything just gets sucked into that um, at the detriment of those productive resources in the physical going into the physical world. Yeah. Like there was a bunch of people like we're going towards Ready Player One. I'm like, have you fucking seen that movie? That sounds terrible. Or like Snow Crash. Right. Yeah. Like, have you read Snow Crash? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, is that is that really what you want? Um, so, yeah. I, well, so so I guess I think maybe so I, I so I, I tweeted out something that was in support of the rebrand for for Facebook, and I think some people saw that as my endorsement of you know this metaverse idea at all, and like you know Facebook controlling it. Um, it was actually more just like an objective analysis of Facebook's strategy, and I think I think it's just objectively a good move for their company, whether or not or not I think it's good for for Facebook, or sorry, uh, whether or not I think it's good for the world. Yeah. Um, I very much believe that, you know, humans should be focused on outward 
growth, outward expansion, and that a lot of the internet um, driven things like like the metaverse, social media are sucking a lot of productive human time and attention away from um, quality, like outward expansionary activities. But I think there's also a game theory here that it's important for people who do believe that to acknowledge, which is I think we should at least acknowledge this is probably happening. Like virtual worlds are probably just going to keep getting bigger because it's like catnip for humans. Um, and the people who are able to effectively capitalize on those trends uh, will have larger power in society. And so to shun it completely, I think would be a mistake um, as opposed to, you know, trying try to like thoughtfully strategize and play out, okay, well, if I really want to see humans expand outward, but I also believe this trend is largely inevitable, how do, you, how do I need to position myself um, to like extract capital back from this fake world into the real world, mm -hmm. potentially? Um, it's sort of like one sort of thing I've been thinking about. Yeah, just trying to, to leverage the inevitable to, to get what you want in the, the physical world. And I, I can see that to an extent too, but I think it's important as well i do I, I mean it's hard you can't deny it you just look at gaming you look at um vr and all that it's objectively getting more popular there's numbers behind it like you can't but that's part of the reason why i sent the the buzz thread over the weekend is because i think uh, they're i think messaging is powerful again like bitcoin's in the middle of a meme war I think that we can get ourselves out of these things. Like me, I've been on a vendetta against ESG. And I think, and I'm not going to say me personally, but I think a collective of people speaking out against it and highlighting its hypocrisy has successfully uh, uh, sort of given ESG a black eye. It's, it doesn't mm -hmm. look good, right? It looks like a terrible strategy right now. Like mm -hmm. people, and yeah, Larry Fink taking a, a step back and, and even admitting that, like, oh, maybe we're going too fast in ESG. He's like the father of ESG. And similar with the metaverse, me personally, I agree with you. I think we should be focusing our efforts and improving the physical uh, space that we live in and, and not uh, incentivizing people to escape into a digital world. Um, I think if you message that, like, hey, like we have the opportunity. Like, yes, things are extremely uh fucked up in the world right now there like opportunity in the physical world has diminished i would argue due to the fiat standard and just the way we've uh completely bastardized our economy and our financial system um however that does not mean we can't fix the physical world like i i want to stop people from like saying the metaverse is inevitable and that's like the whole future of economies and stuff like that um and push people back towards the physical like hey We've got shit to fix out here, like, and we can fix it now that we fixed the money. So let's focus on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, I think, I, I do think though, if we actually, you know, if we if we look in the mirror, um, and we look at what's allowed us to get our messages out there and to grow our influence, and it's it's been this digital world. Oh well, um, yeah, and then we get into a semantics game, right? Like, what is yeah, what is the metaverse? Or? Yeah, I see. I see the metaverse as like literally putting something over your eyes and escaping, like into like gaming. Maybe is like a a two D version of it. Um, but once you put the goggles over your eyes, you go in the pod and escape to the metaverse. So like Twitter, uh, like somebody was like, "You're tweeting from the metaverse." Like, what is Twitter? I'm like, "Well, did we fucking 
say when people are sending telegrams between each other in the 19th century that that was the metaverse. No, it's a communications technology. Right. And it's just a, it's a new medium to communicate. I, I completely agree. And, and actually, though, I, I wonder if like this, the scary thing is when the communications technology and a potential metaverse sort of become one and the same, um, which what, which is like sort of being in this reality is how you communicate to others sort yeah. of in this world. Um, and one, one of the interesting things, I've, I've actually been trying to explore this concept by, by being more hands-on. So uh, I actually started playing uh, Roblox recently. Um, I've just seen kids talking about it and people talking about it sort of for the last few years. And I had, I just like, I was very confused by the whole concept. Um, I've never been a huge gamer. So, so I, I downloaded Roblox on my phone a few months ago and started playing around. And like, I honestly still don't completely get it, right? It's still, I don't really completely understand why so many people, especially so many kids, like find, find this that fun. But one of the things I realized was um, a lot of them use it to just hang out with their friends. Yeah. And uh, what the, what's happened over the last year, over the last two years with, with COVID and this pandemic has like almost forced this entire generation um, into these metaverses of sorts, into these virtual worlds, um, just to just to satisfy their desire for socializing. Yeah. Um, which is in in the second order effects of this, I think you're going to be very perverse. Um, yeah. And, this is what the World Economic Forum wants. They want you in your pod socializing exactly. in this fashion. Exactly. Um, and then it becomes very easy to control the message. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it, it's concerning for sure. And I don't know what the answer is. We make the physical world more beautiful. We don't force children to socialize on the internet, number one. I think you, we should allow them to. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, sure, at a minimum, right? But like, why, why is... Why has society been so willing to go along with all of this? I think there's an underlying like cultural issue here, especially in the, in the United States. I mean, maybe it's because I live in San Francisco, so I see the extreme. But um, you know, people have been so willing to cover their kids' faces up and um, and, and just completely change the way they live for you know for something that just doesn't merit that. I mean, yesterday I was I was flying here, I was on a plane. I had, there were three kids like in rows near me and the flight attendant kept like these kids were maybe like two, three, four years old. And the flight attendant kept pressuring the parents to try to get these kids to wear their masks. And the parents were like, don't make me do this. And you know, the flight attendant would be like, no, you, you promised to get your kids to try to wear a mask. And the kids would start crying. It was just like this whole thing. And it was just like, making me so <laughs> angry at the state of affairs. I was like, what, like, what is going on here? Right. And how do we get to this? Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I mean, not, not to like rehash a conversation. That I'm sure we've all had a hundred times, but like, what is going on? You're going to bring Marty Jones out. Um, yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a product of decades of light nudging death by a thousand cuts, whatever you may be like, it's yeah we have a docile massive and the masses are docile and have you ever heard of like the fabian society have you ever heard of the fabian society i think so but the, the fabian f- society is i think it's a british um so it's a british society focused on sort of bringing sort of my understanding is worldwide socialism 
But Fa- but Fabian, the name, um, comes from a Roman general that Hannibal fought. Mm-hmm. So when Hannibal um, crossed the Alps to to uh, attack Rome, um, there he he completely basi- he completely basically yeeted. Uh, you were telling me about this on our hike in April. Oh, was I? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. But yeah. keep going so the freaks know. Yeah. So he basically like yeeted every you know Roman ar- ar- every army like Rome sent at him, um, and just like you know Rome was like freaking out, right? And there was this general Fabian um, who his strategy was very different. He didn't go at Hannibal's throat. He didn't try and directly um, attack Hannibal's army. Um, he basically stayed on the outside and just sort of tried to make Hannibal's life really, really, really hard. Um, and just like year after year after year. And the Romans, I think there was like a lot of pushback saying like, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you, um, you know, fighting him directly? And he was saying, well, no, it's important. This is the strategy. The strategy is just like wear them down. Um, and so the, the Fabian society is basically like this long-term sort of like cut by cut by cut, like demoralize anybody with a sense of individualism um, to bring like worldwide socialism. Yeah. And um, they're willing to, they're willing to wait, uh, you know, a hundred years uh, yeah. to do that. And when you have an enemy uh, playing that game um, and, and you're not, aware that you're even in a game you're not even aware there's an enemy or there's a game yeah. you're gonna have a bad time and one of my one of my biggest issues with the, the 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 groups in the united states that would fight back against this um whether you want to call them the right or um or libertarians or wh- whatever however you want to label them they're very very bad at painting a picture of what the future should look like Mm-hmm. And all they focus is on um, rea- it's very reactionary and pushing back against uh, sort of the, the latest sort of onslaught, which inevitably always fails. There's no strategy. There's no big picture vision of like what, what the future should look like. I, I would argue Bitcoiners actually are, are the one group that, the, that actually we're the best at it. We're the best at it. And which is why it's so alluring, why, which is why it's such a fast growing group of people. Um, and 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 and. and increasingly i would say bitcoiners are, are full of a group of people that were historically aligned with other political movements that now sort of laugh at them um because they yeah. realize libertarians is a big it, meme it, now exactly um because they're not playing to win no and so i don't know that was just a bunch of random thoughts no but, but I, I think it's relevant no i think it's very relevant like we are in a game freaks People, oh, you conspiracy theorists, Marty, like, just fucking look around. Like, they, they tell you straight up, we're going to build back better. We're going to get you off fossil fuels. We're going to get you off reliable energy. We're going to make you eat bugs. You're not going to own anything. Like, they're saying this shit out loud. Like, that's part of it, too. Like, once they normalize these absurd ideas and they're, they're trying to, like, the build back better meme alone. Yeah. Broad coordination across the globe. Build back better. Build back better. And they're just trying to get that three letter, three word, excuse me, phrase in your head. So you just accept it. And, you know, I think one of the reasons people sort of call this, this way of thinking conspiracy theories is because they, they sort of assume that we're saying that there's some like one guy at the top, you know, like pulling strings, controlling him. And 
you know, if there was, and like, why, why can't you point to them, right? And why are all these people going along with it? Like, what do what leverage do they really have? And I think the reality is, it's actually more of like an emergent. Um, there are people, obviously, like like pushing this forward, but why are they, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why are those people pushing, you know, socialism on the world? And I've heard some interesting theories, and one of the more compelling ones I heard was that power will just easily um, accrue to to um, groups of people that sort of promise things to the historically disenfranchised, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is just the most sort of addictive thing in the world to not feel enfranchised and then see some, someone promising you something that would give you relevance, give you more power in the system. Um, and so, so, so you basically have this world where you have a small group of people who historically were, you know, civilization builders who are very like independent focused, build, like explore the frontier, build the future. And you have the vast majority of people who really just aren't like that. And basically that this the collectivism, um, is a very compelling uh, vision of the future for a lot of humanity, effectively. Um, and so then if you think about sort of, you know, you know at, the, at the sociopath tier of society, um, you know, there are smart people who realize that and see that, and, and, and they often come from like a history of civilization builders as well, but they know that if they sort of align themselves with this more collectivist thing, that's actually the best uh, prospect they have at, at accruing personal power. And so the incentives, I think, are just there for this to always be a force in society. Yeah. That's sort of how I see it. Agreed. I mean, that's why like AOC is where she is. It's a, why a lot of these socialistic politicians are God, gaining popularity. But like, again, going back to like Bitcoiners are the best at painting a optimistic vision of the future going the other direction. I think again, going back to something I said earlier, messaging does work and it is powerful. And I think we can win over at least a a good portion of the masses by leaning into the things that, that just make logical sense. Like again, it's Bitcoin standard really driving home the concept of time preference and the lowering your time preference and saving capital to deploy in the future being actually pivotal to uh, uh, advancing society is massive. Number two, like the, the human rights aspect of the network side of Bitcoin and the fact that it's P2P, like leaning into that, I mean like, Hey, this is actually like, you don't want the handouts from big government uh, that's backed by the big banks and big corporations. They're actually the ones that are helping craft the policies that create the inequality that you're angry about. And I think we're very doing a very good job of painting that picture as well. And then mining, like we're going to beat them on every narrative just because we have the truth on our side. That's Mm -hmm. again, like, I think going touching back on the metaverse and all that, like we live in this anomaly of human history because we fucked up the money so bad. We have the ability to fix the money. Therefore we have the ability to fix the world and it's just percolating the message. And I think we're hitting a point, especially when you juxtapose the Bitcoin message with the uh, dementia riddled president that we have, the build back better plan, all the money printing. It's like, all right, I think even some, a lot of the masses are like beginning to question like what the fuck is going on here. Yeah. And I think one of the, I, I do think we still 
have hope in the United States. I still think we do have this culture. The culture is on our side. Like most people, regardless of sort of how they vote, do have this, um, I think do share this desire to, to live free and, and prosper by the, fr- the fruit of their own labor, um, to have self-determination about the future for themselves and their family. Um, I think the, 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 the Bitcoin movement, the, the sort of ideological movement associated with it is the, is the hope for a counterbalance to this like, very radical left-wing agenda, um, which to date before Bitcoin was the only thing painting a picture for what the future could look like, right? Free housing, free healthcare, free education for you and your family, right? There's very clear things. And you look at what Republicans were saying. It was like, not that, no, just, just no, it's just like, not that. Right. Um, it wasn't, you know, like Reagan, I I don't think since Reagan, like we've really painted a real picture, like America is like the shining city on the Hill. Right. Um, and, and weirdly, I think the, 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 the Bitcoin movement is just this counterbalance, uh, and it is the one thing painting a picture for what the future could look like for America and the world where we have a country full of people who um, have self-determination over their own future, think long-term, help other people, um, and, and like build beautiful communities. And I, I, you know, that's why I do this. Yeah, same. I mean, like you think about the, uh, the infamous Bitstein tweet, uh, hodl Bitcoin, lift weights, eat meat. Like, like there's some like again all having to do with low time preference like hodl bitcoin it's low time preference because it's going to increase in purchasing power the longer you hold it um lift weights like take personal responsibility take care of your health eat meat in that same vein like bring back uh, grazing cattle we're going to lower our time preference so that we can build beautiful buildings and like you said we're going to have strong communities strong towns bitcoiners are really heavy on localism and and nuclear families which is another cornerstone of society like building beautiful buildings is one that i think is it's not just buildings too i think it's streets yeah i think i've i've, I've gone down the rabbit hole in this somewhat recently there's a really interesting youtube video about something called strodes um and how america is full of strodes a, str- a strode is is uh is neither a street nor a road um the definition being a street is something that's built for the pedestrian, right? Mm-hmm. It can facilitate a car, but it is built first and foremost for the for the pedestrian, for humans. Um, and a road is built for cars. It's a high, it's like a high throughput, fast um, uh, thoroughfare for cars to get from A to B. A strode is something that has sidewalks and lots of things that you pull in and out of, like strip malls and things like that. But it's also full of fast-moving cars, um, and it it it's like the typical thing you see in sort of like most American cities. It's like this. You came up here on a strode. I came up here on a strode, right? And yeah. when you actually think of it in those terms, you're like, these things are abominations, yeah, and um, are truly terrible for culture um, and for building communities. Um, they don't bring any joy. Uh, they they divide communities. They physically um, physically. Um, which has been a big issue in the United States. I mean, historically, even like racially, these, these, like these, these awful, um, like, like drug ridden. So I know what you're trying to say. And I highly recommend all you freaks go listen to the Mo facts with Adam Curry show where they dive into trap music and the emergence of trap music out of Atlanta 
came uh, due to like a large highway infrastructure project that divided the communities. And they called it a trap house because the house like uh, at the end of the block was literally a trap. Like you get trapped down there. Like yeah. it's easy for the cops to come, but like the way the highway system work, it, it uh, divided these communities and created the ability for these trap houses to pop up. Like they'd be like the worst, uh, worst valued house in the neighborhood. And so just naturally due to that, you'd attract um, low value individuals who are selling like crack and shit like that. And that's, that's how the trap house started. It was due to physical infrastructure that divided a, a once like bustling community. Yeah. And a lot of this is, you know, I think stems from car companies sort of capturing political power in the United States and pushing for a lot of this. Um, but I think a lot of Americans until my, when I first heard these ideas, my initial reaction was, Oh, you're just like a hippie, you know, this is stupid. You know, I love cars. And after like over the last like three to five years, I've become utterly convinced that, um, like car first, like strode type sort of, um, things throughout America is actually extremely detrimental to our culture and our future. Yeah. I mean, go read Strong Towns if you haven't yet, freaks. Like Charles Marone, like it's fucking. He get and he he dives into like the economic sense of it too, like uh, value per square foot or revenue per square foot or revenue per acre mm. um, in Strong Towns that have streets for pedestrians. The the value per square foot is significantly higher. Like the the economic density in a town, like you would see in Spain, like Sevilla or something like that, is extremely high compared to these suburban strip mall communities that that are have like WalMarts and a bunch of like fast food chains in them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then on top of that, too, the so not only the economic sense, but these physical spaces affect our mental state, right? Mm-hmm. Like ugly buildings, ugly roads. Like they do a lot to erode our, our mental well-being as well. Yeah, these brut- like brutalist, um, you know, government buildings. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they're built to dominate the human spirit uh, and... Force us into the metaverse. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, this gets into a bigger discussion about like art and stuff, but I, I think like, you know, a lot of these art, leaning communities, whether it's architecture or other things sort of got like went off the rails, um, and started just trying to like, uh, impress each other, uh, at the, at the detriment of, you know, our, our society, right. Yeah. Architects oh. no longer seem to try to, um, bring hope and beauty to humanity. They, they seem it's very self masturbatory. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, which is weird. It's like, why are you getting off to this ugliness? Like, is it like the race to see who can build the ugliest thing or it can make like the most absurdist design and implement it? Or do these people actually think these are like beautiful buildings at the end of the day? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Neither do I. That's why I like this house. This house was born in or made in the fifties before we went off the Fiat standards. Stood Beautiful. the test of time. Back it in. makes you happy to walk, walk in into its its you know yard and it brings good emotions. Yeah, thank you. I love this studio. I hope like we can just do this outside like in the winter. That's what I'm waiting. Like, I'm waiting to see my first Austin winter. Yeah, um, I'd like to be doing this i mean it's november 1st we're doing it starting to get heat up it's a beautiful day 
we're getting towards 80 degrees here. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, the world's fucked. But, and what do you think? Do you think people are waking up? I mean, obviously the flight attendants aren't. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think the jury's still out. Um, I think we'll see this next election because weirdly, like I kind of, I tend to believe generally presidential elections aren't that big of a deal. But the reality is just the like federal travel rules right now um, around sort of like vaccines and masks and things like that. Well, even before that, the TSA. Like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that was the first example of the federal government taking advantage of a um, of an emergency to uh, dominate the population um, and force us into a permanent state of subservience in you know one new way with this TSA, which is just you know ridiculous. Uh, and then. And this is, I'm, I'm worried this is a new one, right? I'm worried this is like a new TSA. Like, we're always going to have to have our faces covered whenever we're in a public, you know, publicly designated, like, transportation, whether it's an airplane, a railroad c- car, or an Uber, um, or a subway. And it's just one more way to, to make everybody that much more subservient. And standing up to it becomes just more of a burden, right? Yeah. Um, I myself, I used to like not, I used to purposefully say I don't want to be scanned in the TSA. And after about a year, it was just kind of like, whatever, I'll just do it now, yeah. right? And um, I stand in the scanner with middle birds just like to, to voice my displeasure. Nice, I That's, like that. Yeah, I always get a, a pat down after that. <laughs> yeah, it's just, um, so I, I think what real I think what really has to happen is, uh, this liberty-minded group of people needs to truly gain political power and get rid of some of these things that we thought were permanent, right? And keep keep ask keep asking and, and making people realize that these things don't have to be permanent fixtures in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, things like the Bank Secrecy Act, things like the TSA, things like the Patriot Act, things like um, Financial Action Task Force. Yeah, exactly. Um, things like these COVID um, restrictions. All of these things, like Milton Friedman put it perfectly, you know, there's no, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. Um, lots of these things were sort of put in place as a reaction to something that happened, and then they just become permanent fixtures of our society because the inertia of government is, you know, so much bigger than any one group of people um, can change, and you end up with these apparatuses that, you know, just complete become become completely unremovable uh, unless you build up a very 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 significant um, uh, group to to undo it and we I think people just have to put in the work yeah <clears throat> exactly I think that is something that people a lot of bitcoiners too uh, discount is work hard work and building a lot of bitcoiners are under the impression like oh you just buy bitcoin hold and we'll fix the world that way Mm -mm. which is like bitcoin's a tool yes buying bitcoin and hold it does have its advantages but you also need to get that tool and and create more utility around it as well you got to talk to your and you've got to talk to your politicians i mean one of the things that i did not realize until recently was how much influence it really any one person can have if they just try to reach out to their representatives. I mean, it's, I, I actually, I think it's similar to being in college and like you go to your professor's office hours and you realize, and you're like, here's this world-class expert uh, and very few people are actually showing up 
to talk to them in their designated office hours. Um, and, but if you show up, you can spend 30 minutes talking to this person about, you know, really you want. cool things, whatever yeah. you want. And they'll listen to you or they'll, or, or they'll talk to you and teach you. And, and so I think government's like the same way. I think everyone sort of just assumes that they can't have any impact. And through voting, I agree. Voting is like, you know, mark, like you have your voice is equal to everyone else's, but if you're willing to actually put in work to write, um, to write to your representatives, write to your congressmen, to try to even meet them in person, go to town halls, like they will listen. And I don't think people realize actually how much influence they can have if they're willing to just um, put in the work to try and try and make things happen. I, I agree. And this is something I've gone back and forth with so many times over the last few years, but the last year particularly, it's like, uh, and it's still undecided, pun intended, in my mind. Um, like, is it worth putting in all that effort to do that? Or it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like, or should we just build this parallel system and render it completely uh, impotent and, and obsolete? I think it's important because mm-hmm. I don't think it's like saying you're going to build a parallel system is great in theory, but in practice, like what does it mean when you have a, the world's biggest military and government sort of like right there when you, and potentially willing to be changed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, why not try? I, I guess it's like, why yeah. not try? And I, I think I'm, I'm being convinced of that argument. I mean, and just me personally too, having had conversations, uh, be a great American mining, uh, particularly uh, with representatives in many states uh, helping them navigate energy policy and Bitcoin mining and actually highlighting to them that like Bitcoin will make you more energy efficient is actually like a boon for your state from a tax perspective, from an emissions perspective, from whatever it may be. And I'm happy to report that um, I was able to make significant process, progress uh, with a lot of uh, individual representatives and, and Congress people. Um, okay, I mean, like you had like Ted Cruz was educated. I didn't personally educate him about any of this or his advisors, but like he was pretty well educated on on Bitcoin mining as a as a boon for the energy industry. Yeah, at the at the at the at the Bitcoin mining conference in Austin, you know, he he came, you know, he was very he had clearly done a lot of research and put a lot of thought into this, and I think um, many other uh, many other politicians and political leaders across the United States are, are, are going to do the same thing. Um, because I think the reality is Bitcoin just gives people hope for the future. Yeah. And it is going to be a useful um, useful political tool. Yeah. And I think, um, I think the highest leverage engagement with the political system is at the state level, right? Because there's a lot of states out there that don't like the federal government as well. If you help them realize that Bitcoin uh, provides a, a network and an asset that that can eventually, if they are able to get some, um, give them leverage with the federal government, saying, "Hey, we actually don't need your funds." Um, that that's powerful as well. It dissolves the power of the federal government to an extent. Yeah, and, and I think I think a lot of people in this space just forget that you know one dude. Maybe or maybe a group, right? Created Bitcoin, right? They single-handedly did one thing that changed the course of human history. But they're not the only people who ever do something that changes the course of human history. Like, you can do that too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, one of my personal objectives in the next ten years is try to get the Bank Secrecy Act 
repealed. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying I will be able to necessarily achieve that, but like I 100% know if I don't try, then it's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, more people need to think like that. If like, not me, then who? Exactly. If not me, then who? Like if there's something you want to see happen, just make it happen. Right. Because the reality is there's very few people who actually care strongly enough to really do something. And if you are that one person, you can make an impact. Yeah. All right. How are we going to repeal the Bank Secrecy Act? What's our plan? Because I want to do it with you. I want to help out in any way I can. Well, I think like the so the first time I actually ever even um, brought up the concept was at a compliance conference. And everyone in the room just laughed when I, I asked the panel, like, can we try to repeal the Bank Secrecy Act? And like it was it, it, that 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 moment sort of just seeing the reaction from everybody because I, and I, I knew they would laugh, by the way, but I did it because I wanted to test the waters and see if it was a, a meme that or like a concept that was um, something people had really thought about. And I, I could tell from the reaction in the room that it wasn't like it. They, they, they saw the Bank Secrecy Act like they saw gravity. Yeah. Right? It's just something that's there and we can't change it. Um, which I thought was actually great news because that meant that no one's really tried yeah. for a long, long time. Um, and so I think, so, so I don't have like a, a crystal clear action plan, but um, I think that it, I think that actually oddly Bitcoin's rise to prominence and Bitcoin's increasingly political, we can leverage Bitcoin's political support um, to try to make this happen. Uh, and, I do think there's some like thoughtful analysis that needs to be done because one of the, the biggest, the biggest um, hurdle to overcome is convincing both the right and the left that this isn't going to open the doors for terrorism and, you know, awful crimes. Right. Um, so uh, basically the, the case is going to need to be made to, to Congress that, that this isn't helping uh, prevent significant crimes and it's just hurting Law-abiding citizens. Law-abiding citizens across across the political spectrum, right? So let's let's dive into this. Why is the Bank Secrecy Act bad? Like particularly, like what does it force individuals and companies like River to do that that is detrimental to their well-being? So basically, the Bank Secrecy Act weaponizes or weaponizes American financial institutions at, and forces them to serve as as arms of law enforcement for the government. Um, now in many ways it's, it's not totally crazy. Basically anytime a company sees something sketchy, right. They're forced to report They're supposed to report it. Right. Um, at its core, that doesn't sound so bad. Right. Um, but the, the issue then becomes, you know, companies then basically say, well, okay, I'll just report like anything that looks a little bit odd. Cause then it becomes kind of like a cover your ass sort of thing. Um, which actually like these big banks really like, cause they can just say, oh, well we reported it. Yeah. And rarely anything comes of any of this stuff, but you have this massive just flow of information, just like siphoning, like, you know, flowing into the federal government. Right. It's a massive like surveillance dragnet, um, that, that will be weaponized against the American people. Um, and it's only a matter of time. I mean, it probably has in many ways um, already, but, and, 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 and one of the challenges is, is it also forces American financial institutions to sort of 
act with suspicion towards any customer, right? Like you are guilty until proven innocent mm-hmm. um, when you go to an American financial institution because they are, they've been told that if you screw up, right, you're on the hook. And so they're forced to then treat everybody who comes in as this potential risk. Uh, and I think the second order effects of that can be seen, you know, that we just put up with it, right? Like, oh, your bank account gets shut down and you can't be told why, right? Yeah. Or, um, uh, you know, your limits, this, you, you know, you can't take out more than this much from your bank, even though it's your money, right? So um, it also, it also, uh, has this this really perverse effect of making it extremely expensive to start a financial institution. So the larger companies actually like it because they just have these systems where they, you know, you know, send in the data and they have to have this huge massive compliance operation that they know like no small company, you know, can compete with. Like just to start River, um, you know, we need to raise millions of dollars in in venture capital so we could cover these costs. They're real costs. Like you have to pay real people, you have to pay real consultants and real lawyers to do all this stuff for you. And um, it blocks out competition. Yeah. Creates a natural moat, creates absurd business cost. And again, the, the investment in those compliance costs does not return like in the, like the grander scheme of things, any like actionable, prevention of money laundering or terrorist financing or anything like that it's like tsa it's like the tsa it's like, it's like the tsa for money it's yeah. like the tsa for banks it's annoying for everybody and does very little to actually prevent anything really bad from happening um and then it gets worse with time especially when you factor in inflation and actual inflation like the barriers to to collect and report more information keep getting lower and lower correct mm-hmm. like what is it the ten thousand dollar limit specifically and the, these things are so reactionary too, right? I mean, before 1970, was America um, some crazy den of just illicit activity and lawlessness and terrorists were just sending money all over the place and trafficking children and after 1970 with the Bank Secrecy Act, that all just stopped, right? I mean, same thing with you know T- TSA. It's like, well, we weren't blowing planes up Nobody flew a plane into the World Trade Center before 2001, before the TSA. Like, why do we need it now? Right? They're, they, they're like these band-aids on, like, deeper social things. Like, yeah. we should be asking ourselves the deeper questions. Um, why, are, why are we creating terrorists in the first place? Well, exactly. Where are these terrorists coming from? Where are these school shooters coming from? Everyone wants to talk about banning guns, but, like, you know, a 16-year-old could buy a machine gun from a magazine in 1913, you know, and nobody was shooting up their school. Yeah. Right? Um, so like, you know, we're focusing on the wrong things in this country. Um, maybe you're forcing kids into fucking indoctrination camps and it drives them fucking crazy. They start shooting up their classmates. Like, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you've created a, a fucking society where the, the outlook of the future is so dreadful that people would rather go shoot their classmates than, than actually be civil productive members of society. Nobody thinks that way. No, because I th- because it's too abstract and there's no easy solution, whereas there's an easy... Band-aids are easy to conceive mm-hmm. of and to put on things, but actually like looking inwardly and saying, how do we fix our own society? There's One, it's not something a single person or a government can do, right? Um, and so they kind of just grasp at what they can, and 
you know, they can implement things that would make society healthier, but um, very few people will see the the cause and effect uh, and, and understand why it would be important to, to do that. Yeah. Oh, now I'm getting all pissed off. Like, particularly about, like, the war on drugs. That's tied into the Bank Secrecy Act as well. And the quote-unquote solution to what is perceived as a drug problem is to just go all out war on that quote unquote drug problem and basically target. I mean, the CIA fucking brought crack into inner cities and charged, uh, inner city minorities with sentences that were, they're vastly longer than, um, the white collar crime of doing cocaine. It's the same exact drug, just in a different form. Like, and then, then the externalities of that is that you destroy, the nuclear family in many of these cities where these minorities were were targeted and that has generational effects moving forward that makes the cost of fixing that problem more expensive and then you just compound it with more and more like nobody ever says maybe the drug war was wrong maybe we don't need to even worry about drug laundering if we just make drugs legal and let free willing adults make decisions for themselves maybe drug use will actually go down because uh, people is just like not something bad that anti-authoritarians uh, just are naturally drawn towards. Yeah, I think it's. I think we have a. Um, I think we. I mean, the world has always been, but probably even in modern society, even large, more largely plagued by um, self-righteous fixers, right? And it isn't just one one party it's it's both parties and like these self-righteous fixers are people who um there's like the c.s lewis quote is like you know kind of paraphrasing um people who torment people who torment us for our own good uh are the worst people because Mm -hmm. they will never stop because they do so with the permission of their own conscience as opposed to you know some evil robber baron who just wants to make a bunch of money like at some point his um his his, his greed will be satiated, right? But the moral busybody um, that always wants to, f- uh, you know, tell everybody what to do um, is going to plague us forever. Yeah. Um, Leanna Wen, that chick from the CDC. Oh. Anthony Fauci. So I don't know if Anthony Fauci, you're describing that or something like completely more uh, I, I, I don't, evil. I don't know. I mean, pr- I, would, I would argue yes, right? It's, yeah. it's a group of people who've been educated who are educated and they they deeply believe that they know better than everybody and it's their job to it's a paternalism right mm. um it's their job to fix and, and and fix the masses and tell them how to do things um because they they don't know any better and and these fixers have good intentions i think um but again they they create a they create a hell on earth um in the endless pursuit to satiate their own self-righteousness yeah uh and i i think it's like an an unfortunate outcome of our really we do have a very good university system like we have these great minds who come out of american universities and a lot of these people are very very smart people but they have this attitude right of of moralizing and self-righteousness and that's just the word that's it's 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 very bad for everybody yeah has the last two years has very starkly highlighted. Um, I heard a funny sort of quip once: Harvard was Harvard was built to train Puritan ministers, and still does. 
Um, Because if you actually look at, if you there's there are a few interesting books about this. One is called Albion Seed. It's a it's a book about sort of the different nations in America um, culturally, and there's like America has these different nations that sort of culturally come from different regions in, in, in England. I mean, like we are at the end of the day, we are a British. We are, our, our, our nation is, is defined by British culture, right? Yeah. Our, our language, our political system, our sports are like every single aspect, like, you know, 90% of our culture is defined by this, um, regardless of where waves of immigrants afterwards came, right? Like, you know, my great grandfather was from Syria, but you know, this country has, is not built on like Syrian culture, right? It's, mm-hmm. um, it comes from the founding and, um, the, the Northeast, uh, was the Puritans, um, and they ha- they got some things right. They they're very um, they're very hardworking. They're very focused on uh, <coughs> being being sort of modest and uh, f- thinking long term, saving, being humble. Um, but they're also very very moralizing and have no problem telling other people how they should be living their lives and punishing them if they don't live their lives a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were in a Puritan society and you broke the rules, you got punished. If you if you dressed the wrong way or you didn't go to church on a Sunday or you played a sport on Sunday or, you know, God forbid, you know, you, um, you're a woman holding hands with a man um, after a certain hour, right? Things, the witch trials, things like that. So we still have that. And, and so that's northeast coastal elites, mm-hmm. right? Um and that still, I think, plays the pure the Puritan sort of culture, still plays a very um, strong role in how people from the this part of the country like views their role in society. Yeah, no, that I, that was another book we were talking about in our hike in April as well. And that that when you mentioned that to me, I was like, holy shit, it's true. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, there, he, he, the, the book. There's another book called American Nations that breaks America down into even more regions, but. Um, you know the, the 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 four main ones this book talks about are so there's the Northeast Puritans, there's the uh, like the, the Cavaliers uh, of the South, like mm-hmm. landowning aristocracy, um, starting in Virginia, going down. Yeah, exactly. Um, or like often the, uh, a lot of those people came or they were originally in Bermuda, I believe, um, and had their plantations there and brought it to the United States. Very aristocratic, very okay having like this very stratified class system. They're like the the landholding gentry from southeastern England, um, and obviously that had its own very um, sort of uh, like perverse um, aspects to that society with with the with, with slavery and their um, you know complete disregard for anybody below their social class. Um, then there were the the Highland like the Highlanders, people from the Scottish Highlands. Uh, who settled sort of the, App- the Appalachians, where, mm-hmm. where, my, where my family's from, like West Virginia, um, and that region. And those were basically the rabble-rousers and people who were hyper-independent and didn't want anybody to tell them what to do about anything. Um, somewhat dysfunctional, but also very, very much... Um, anti-fragile? You know, anti-fragile, exactly. Yeah. Um, they weren't going to build... They, they weren't going to create the next, um, you know... They weren't going to put out the next Leonardo da Vinci's, mm-hmm. um, but they also weren't going to go anywhere and come rain or shine or a nuclear war. They'd still be around. Yeah. Uh, and then the last group, I, you know, I, I don't, the last group was more sort of like expanded westward. Um, I forget where in England they came from, but anyways, 
I think it's a very interesting way of viewing our country as like this group, different, ch- different nations actually that, mm-hmm. cl- that have cultural roots in, in England and from different regions. Yeah. I mean, just having myself born in Philadelphia, lived in Charleston, South Carolina for a bit, lived in Chicago, lived in New York, and now living in Austin, Texas. Like it's undeniable that there's these different sects within our country. Um, south versus northeast versus midwest versus southwest now i mean it's it's mm-hmm. a very clear delineation between the, the different cultures and their values specifically like, yeah like i experienced that that southern cavalier culture um how you described in charleston i mean that's how charleston still is till this day like there's still a bit of an aristocracy yeah like, i was just there last week and it's Southern fraternities and sororities, yeah. you know, they they dress up. It's, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it has its own like cool sort of flavor to it, but it has also sort of weird roots as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody's got their weird roots. Oh well. yeah. I mean the Appalachian, the Highlanders, they were like, they were the Scottish Highlanders. They had just came from like centuries of, of war and strife. Um, and just loved fighting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what like uh, we were actually yeah. While I was at my which is which is interesting because well, I was at a family wedding in Charleston. And a lot of my family split split between like the Northeast Philly area and the South in Charleston, Myrtle Beach. And that's what uh, I always knew. Both sides of my family came directly from Ireland, but I always forget. I never knew why. My mom said, "Yeah, like my great grandfather." On her side, they, they and my great grandmother emigrated here after the potato famine. Um, so we've got that Irish blood that's spread between the South, and they moved to Mississippi first. At least my grandmother's family did, mm. and then they spread up north. Interesting. Um, I don't know what that adds to the conversation we just had, but it's just a little family history there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Lots of Irish. Lots of Irish. Lots of Irish here. I like the Irish. I like being Irish. American, I like my Irish heritage, if you will. What are your thoughts on the CIA? <laughs> What's the deal? Uh, I think we need to to break them into uh, ten thousand shards and sp- spread them into the wind. I'm, I'm going to get shot tomorrow for saying that. Art, do you think the CIA is a group of very highly competent, effective um, uh, actors? Or is it like any other government agency that's sort of a mix of just like a lot of very, a lot of incompetence, a lot of bureaucracy and like old inertia and can't really get anything done? I kind of, it's sort of like the eternal question um, because I actually kind of go back and forth on that. Well, now we, now we get back to like the first line of the, uh, the podcast about Satanism. (laughs) Like, well, how did the CIA start? I think that, I mean, people got to go back and go through the history of the CIA. The CIA was started by Nazis that the government fucking, like, brought over. Operation Paperclip. Yeah, brought over, and they had Nazis start this agency, like, right after World War II. Literally, I guess it's historical. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you can Freedom of Information Act this stuff. Like, it's yeah. out there. Yeah. And then, like, one of the leaders of the CIA, Alan Dules, whatever his name was, like, an avowed Satanist, and, like... I don't know if it's the, they're still run by Satanists and Nazis today, but like just that is literally you can verifiable. You can go verify this. Don't trust me. Go verify it. It's in the roots of that agency, 
And if that's in the roots, I don't know if I trust it that much. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, on one hand, if I was running a country, I would want an agency focused on collecting information about other countries. And given that we live in an adversarial world where we need to um, make sure that we're protected and our, you know, we're doing the, we're doing what we need to to ensure our existence and our future. I would want something like that to exist. But on the other hand, it seems like ours has kind of gone off the rails. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it, it's been off the rails for quite a while. I think JFK realized that. I think that's why he, he got his head blown off um, for trying to vocalize that to people. Um, and then, yeah, he. he wasn't he was it RFK or JFK who was responsible for stopping the proposed um, false flag uh, of the, the the airline flight that they wanted? They were they were proposing an airline be filled with CIA agents and their families uh, 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 and fly to Cuba, um, veer it off course, and then blow up an empty one uh, to make it look like it was shot down. Yeah, um, and they nixed it. Um, I think JFK next to or RFK. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, they had the golf of Tolkien. I mean, the thing that pisses me off these days is like, uh, it's like we go out there, we're like, we're going to stop nations from uh, meddling in like the, the Russiagate stuff. Like they're, they're meddling in our elections. Like that's literally all the CIA does is like go meddle in elections and fucking place who they want to be. Uh, the rulers in these particular countries and the rulers typically fuck things up. Like I'm a pacifist. I just, I don't like war. I think if we're going to go out there and try to lecture people about meddling in elections, we shouldn't be doing it at all. Like if we are doing it, we have no moral authority to go lecture. It's just fucking nauseating seeing the American political class go lecture when the CIA and the FBI, frankly, are going out there and, doing covert operations to yeah to manipulate elections of countries that should be sovereign just leave everybody the fuck alone please um be nice would be nice uh it's fuck man yeah it's like how do you i mean it'll be interesting to see oh shit that tucker carlson thing documentary on the january 6th stuff and the fbi informants the, the worst attack on our capital since since 9-11 9-11 or so or the, <laughs> that's the thing that gives me hope like their their narratives are so fucking dumb it's like all right you guys are getting lazy and incompetent so like i do think there isn't there is a two plus two equals five marty yeah i think there is like they're getting they're certainly maybe they're they've gotten so confident in their ability to successfully wage these psyops and covert operations that they they think they're infallible um but it's becoming obvious that these agencies are getting sloppy as all hell yeah i mean but you know it's it's interesting actually though these absurd statements like that um these absurd statements like that are uh i i read a quote recently um I i forget the exact quote but effectively you know, absurd absurdity is a much is a much more effective uh, organizing tool than the truth, right? Mm-hmm. If you can get a bunch of people to say two plus two equals five, it's almost like a uniform, right? Like I'm part of the party, and people who say two plus two equals four, you know, they're not with you. Yeah. Um, and and so, 
sort of saying these things, right? Like, you know, this was the worst attack on our, uh, on the nation's capital. I think it was like since the civil war, like something, some, something like, absurd, like completely not even remotely like in the realm of yeah, truth. Since, since the white house burned down, what was under John like, Adams it, it, or something it, like that? Yeah. 1812 or something. It was like, what? Like, um, and, uh, you know, th- those things are, are, are really good ways to identify who's on your side and who's not. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's just sort of something I've started paying more attention to, um, saying absurd things and making things that aren't truths, truths, uh, and see who agrees with you, um, is how you sort of continually both move the, move the narrative um, shift the Overton window, sh- shift the Overton window, redefine sort of reality, but also identify who you need to deal with. Yeah. Um, <sighs> they're going to try and deal with me, please. Well, why can't not, I just think that the CIA and FBI are bad and like point out like these objective truths and well, it's not really useful for identifying people who you already know aren't on your side. Right. But like, imagine sort of like on the left, right. You have, you know, the, you have the moderates, and then you have sort of these very sort of powerful sort of um, very left-leaning factions. And they've effectively been able to sort of capture um, more and more moderates. And it's actually odd um, sort of how many previously sort of middle-of-the-road people will sort of like go along with these narratives because they sort of set this um, – the left is actually very good at this. It's sort of like it's you're a either, formula. You're either on the board, like yeah, we, like redefine, sort sort of say two plus two equals five. Um, if you don't agree with that, you know you're racist or something, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and you know excommunicate those people to set an example for the next time you say two plus two equals six or three mm-hmm. plus three equals seven. Um, and it's a it's a very good formula for getting a very uh, very good, very uh, loyal, you know, political, uh, political following, um, and I think it's something very worth paying attention to. It's, 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 yeah, it's dangerous but effective. Yeah, it can be effective, right? Well, so that's uh, God. I know you freaks don't like me talking about like the vaccine stuff. Like, obviously, the meme of the. Uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated was going around a couple months ago, but now it's becoming like we're already talking about like fifth boosters or like fifth shots, so third boosters. Oh, I'm already a number ten, Marty. <laughs> got to catch them all, like Pokemon. I got all the, like, the Pfizer, the Moderna. Is that why you got that lump in your neck? It's like... <laughs> it means it's working, Marty. <laughs> uh, but like that, like. I think a lot of, I know personally a lot of people were like completely fine. First dose, second dose, even like, all right, I'll take a booster. Now it's like, all right, you're already talking about a fourth booster. It's less than a month than this, excuse me, less than a year since this vaccine program started. Like we're already like on double boosters. Like I know a bunch of people who were just like willing to get the first two shots to go back to normal life that's what they were told that's the other thing it just keeps changing so quickly they keep shifting the narrative it went from two weeks to flatten the curve to not a single person can get covid and we can't even go back to normal until children who like factually and statistically are not at risk from covid like <laughs> yeah. with 100 percent certainty and verifiability and verifiability according to cdc st- statistics um 
we're we're doing all of this now for the children like what yeah i mean everyone who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated there is no good argument for forcing anything on anybody at this point anymore and the vaccines are effective they like are and so anyone who wants it temporarily effective they're sure they're, they're temporarily effective but like if you're scared of COVID, get a vaccine yeah, and you'll be fine. It. Go for it. Right? I don't yeah, care. Some people die with it, but like some people get sick and die. I mean, it's just like humans. Like, I, think, I think what we see is like a, we're, we're seeing how um, we're very divided in our country around sort of how people react to new risks, new long tail risks. And um, some people are just okay with a new risk and because they value their independence above all else and they're willing to just accept new risks. Um, Some people are completely unwilling to accept new risks and will do anything and everything they can, even if that means oppressing an entire population to make sure that risk, you know, doesn't exist anymore. And we saw this on the right with September 11th. Right. Um, Actually, it was kind of saw it across the board. I mean, it was more like just unilateral. Um, or not but the neocons, the neocons certainly leaned into the neocons it leaned into it. Yes, um, and now this with this one, we're seeing it's very much on the left. Um, it's very much become. I don't understand. Like, there's nothing progressive about this, which is the weird thing. Right? There's like literally this, this is like, the least. They went from my body, my choice to fucking take your second booster. Your they went from my body, my choice, and help the underprivileged get better educations and help support their parents so that they, you know. They don't. They can go to work and not have to worry about where their kids are. Too, children cannot leave their house. People cannot leave their house. Their parents can't go to work because they don't have anyone to watch their kids. And now only rich kids will get good educations because their parents will just hire tutors, um, while poor kids have to sit through some Zoom class. They're definitely not going to be paying attention to. Uh, and there's chaos at home. Like I mean, there is no, absolutely nothing progressive about anything that's happened in the last two years, and has ext- created. Ext- further extremes in inequality. So it's just very, very confusing to me um, why the left actually is the big pusher push of this. And I think it's really just because it's, I don't think they've ever really cared about minorities or equality. They always cared about control. It's Again, contr- going it's back control to that moralization. They're the Harvard Puritans who think they know better. Yeah. This was also sort of like the, the sci- sciences time to shine and take control. Like, you know, I've been slaving away in a in a biology lab for seven years complaining about why I don't get paid enough. And this is my time to finally, like, tell everyone how it should be, yeah. right? Um, and Which is that that lifestyle, that particular science is driven by the way the fucking medical industry, science industry has been built up. Like, mm-hmm. that, the incentives of... Whereas pharmaceuticals are just like science papers and journal, like getting your paper into a journal. It's very politicized and the incentives aren't really driven by the quote unquote science. Mm-hmm. The whole term the science has just been completely bastardized. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know, but at the end of the day, I think it, it's important to just be, um, hopeful for the future. There's a book that I really like. Um, that I reread again recently. It's called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about companies, how to build a great, how to take a good company and make it a great company. Um, but in the book, he actually inter- interviews somebody. I forget the guy's name, but he was an admiral. Uh, he served. He was an 
he was in Vietnam as a prisoner of war for I think it was eight years, um, and one of the things that stu- stood out to me about this interview was he's um, Jim Collins asked the admiral, so you know certainly some people like in the POW camp didn't make it. Like why did some make it and some didn't? And he said the optimists didn't make it. Um, and so that and and you know digging into that, he said yeah, the guys who said that we were going to be home by Christmas and Christmas would come and we're still there. The guys who said, then they'd say, Oh, we'll make it to Easter or, and we'll be out by Easter. They're going to come rescue us. Easter comes. They're still there. Oh, you know, we're going to be out by next Christmas. You know, by next Christmas they died. They, they died of a broken heart. They, they just, they didn't make it And being optimistic was, was, was bad. Now with the guys who did make it was always believing it would work out in the end, but being brutally, honest with themselves about the current reality and the current situation. So I kind of think about that, like in, in our own sort of like fight for sort of building a better future, building a better country, we keep being optimistic. I I used to always say like, I'm optimistic, but that interview kind of made me think like, well, optimism isn't necessarily the right word. Mm -hmm. Um, Always believing deeply that it's going to work out in the end. Confident. Confident is very important, but also being brutally honest about the reality of the situation today yeah. is just as important if you ever want to actually win. I agreed. And I, I mean, I think part of the reason I moved to Texas is, again, like, I'm, not, I'm confident that we're going to fix things, but I had to be real. Like, being in the New York, Philly area was going to not be the best situation for my family, which mm-hmm. is a bit hard to say because we actually had to move away from our family to do that. And it's like, I, think I want to make sure that my son is not wearing masks when he goes to school and daycare for the first time. He's going to, mm-hmm. he's hitting that threshold of two years old and I don't want him to wear a mask and up there he's going to be forced to do so. Yeah. My wife and I will not be allowed to go to restaurants when we go home for Christmas because we don't have vaccine passports and we both had COVID and we have the antibodies and we're like, we're not compounding. Mm-hmm the risk when it's, it's completely unnecessary. I'm not just going to do it. So I can go to dinner in, in Philly over mm-hmm. Christmas. It's fucked. But yeah, like again, confidence. Eh, I am optimistic as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now you have me wondering, should I even be saying that anymore? Or, I mean, it's not, I think it means the word means different things to different people. It definitely, yeah. the way he framed it in this interview was certainly something that made me think. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't have a timeline for the transition to a Bitcoin standard and us beginning to just build better buildings and we should just take that term build back better. That's a that's our that's ours now. That's ours. We're building back better. We are. I mean, well, objectively, like we if we're successful, if Bitcoin's successful and beyond Bitcoin we're successful in lowering the, the time preference of a critical mass of individuals. Like that is a better future, objectively. I think it's Bology who has an interesting um, take on things, and and Bology has this this idea that Bitcoin might act like is sort of potentially underrated as a political sort of um, as a political force in the United States, um, and 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 just kind of similar to what we've been talking about, like might actually actually is poised to potentially become a very material. Um, political movement. Um, it's a single issue, and that single issue is driven by a lot of financial capital. Yeah, single issue, well capitalized, and 
unlike any other political movement other than sort of extreme sort of progressives, um, paints a picture for what the future would look like, mm-hmm. which I think is the absolute key. Yeah. Um, if you don't have that, you don't have a strategy. If you don't know what you're building towards, you don't have a strategy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I very much strongly believe that, th- I mean, what we're getting right is painting a picture for the future. Yeah. And again, I think, I think, like we said earlier, I think Bitcoiners do that far better than your libertarians, your, uh, conservative right wing people. What's the libertarian vision for the future? What's the, what's the Republican party's vision for the future? I couldn't tell you. Neither could I. I can tell you, I, 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 I'd actually, if, if you had to ask me whose vision for the future could I describe the best, it would be the Democrats. Right. So, yeah. It doesn't mean I agree with it, but I could at least describe it. Yeah. Which says a lot if you think about it. Yeah, they're right? going to print money and try to give people free health care, free education, uh, yeah. and forcibly uh, decrease the divide in, in wealth between the, the poor and the rich and Again, I get why they want to do that, and I, I get why they think that'll be a good thing, but I think us being Bitcoiners and being advocates of the free market understand that no matter how much you try, and like you cannot micromanage these complex systems, which a schooling system, a healthcare system, monetary system, all are. Absolutely, and, and, but the problem is that the reaction historically to the, 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 the democratic you know, sort of more radical sort of left agenda has always been criticism of it and why it won't work. Mm -hmm. And that is extremely um, unappealing. Yeah. There's nothing interesting to the vast majority of people about criticizing somebody else's vision of the future and not proposing your own. Yeah. And that's why Bitcoin, it's like, Hey, we can help with the wealth and quality gap. We can help with education. We can help with healthcare. Uh, actually to fix all these things yeah. you need to fix the money yeah. I mean, it's, it's a purse incentive that starts from the monetary layer that has produced the, the gap in uh, income uh, the gap in wealth the gap in uh, quality healthcare services and the gap in quality education right so yeah I mean for anyone listening to this podcast you know I, I think that there's a lot of work left to do to make those narratives digestible to people because if you really, because we take for granted that this will make our country better, mm-hmm. right? Because we've dug deep down like in how sort of certain economic incentives have second order effects that will lead to healthier, um, you know, will we'll reduce costs for important things like healthcare and education will increase quality. Um, but but uh, there's a lot of work to actually make it this more digestible mm-hmm. to, 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 to the public and make it very clear that this thing will make your life better if you support it mm-hmm. and and why right um there's still a lot of i think contents to produce there and, and deep thought to, to put into how to make that narrative digestible because it's it's um it's actually not obvious for the vast majority of people why bitcoin would make their life better it's just a super confusing concept it wasn't obvious to me for for quite a while exactly right. um so if we want that to happen, somebody's got to, you know, make that, make that, make that happen. Yeah. It takes effort. You can't just buy and hold. I mean, you can, but I don't think it will usher in the future that we all really want. And I think 
we're lucky to have Alex here doing uh, doing it on many fronts in terms of building a, a company to get more people better access in, uh, to Bitcoin. And then once they have that access, better utility uh, with that Bitcoin. And then, yeah, I think your efforts to abolish the Bank Secrecy Act and, and really think deeply about uh, how to attack the political realm of things is extremely valuable. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's uh, the the thing that's great is having all of us working together towards the same the right. same goal. Well, well, you know what? I'll it's tell great you, to be a good company. It is, and like uh, to throw one more uh, neg at the metaverse. Like I think if you come down here and, and we coordinate meet space and we're able to just drive. Uh, down the street, down our strode, excuse me, to uh, to meet up and, and coordinate in person would be much more effective. So you need to get your ass to Austin. Definitely, definitely. Hey, man, I've been browsing Zillow. These these housing prices keep keep going up, man. You gotta gotta do something about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess I shouldn't wait. I guess that's a reason to exactly. just buy now. Yeah, no, I mean buy just rent. I rented the just house. Rent. Can I can I t- camp camp in your backyard? Okay, we have an extra bedroom, too. You can sleep inside <laughs> if you need to. Um, it's been a pleasure, as always. I love the in-person interview so much better. So much better. Right? So much better. So much better. Um, it was worth flying in for. Hell, yeah. What uh, what should we leave the freaks with here? I think the thing, just to hammer home one more time, if you want something to happen, make it happen. If not you, then who? Yeah. And, and or anybody sitting at home listening, like, ah, uh, really me though? Yes, you. Yes, like, you. I mean, <laughs> yeah. a lot of us had super random backgrounds and we're not doing this before. And if you read some of the most incredible people in the world's autobiographies, it wasn't obvious from early on that they would end up doing something great. They decided to and put their mind to it. Yeah. And um, we have the chance to redefine history. Yeah, I this mean, this is a once in a civilization opportunity. Sort of an opportunity. Don't live your life having let it pass you by. <sighs> Freaks, I was unemployed for the two years before I started writing the band. I guess I'll leave you. I was, I was an unemployed loser who couldn't get a dog walking job. If not you, then who? How things change. How things change. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs>